Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Jackie Bartling was a longtime writer and performer on The Howard Stern Show from 1983 to 2001. He also was showing up monthly in the pages of Penthouse Magazine, released six dirty joke records, and published Jackie the Joke Man Martling's disgustingly dirty joke book. After splitting from Stern, he hosted Jackie's Joke Hunt for several years on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. He has a new book out in 2017, his memoir, The Joke Man, Bow to Stern. So let's get to it! Right, so Jackie Martling, thanks for being here on Last Things I'm nervous, First. man. I'm nervous. You're used to being on microphones. Just kidding. I'm <laughs> thrilled to be here. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> How was uh, Last Things First? How was your commute? I know you said you walked from the subway. How was... Well, you know, I, I live on 56th and 8th, and I figured I'd come down to Broadway Lafayette on the D train and mm-hmm. then, you know, take a quick, uh, brisk walk here. And brisk it was, and walk it was. <laughs> and, you know, I... It was further than I thought. I, I'm just a crybaby. It's actually great, and I'm glad I did it. You well, how, how does how does this morning compare to the olden times of the the middle of the night? I used to get up uh, when I moved to the city. I was only a block away from the Cern Show, but mm-hmm. I for 14 years I commuted, and then the 15th year I got a city apartment and then quit the show. <laughs> but for 14 <laughs> years I got up at like 20 after four mm-hmm. and had every step planned out and zoomed in and hustled my way across town to be sitting there with my pen ready to write at six o'clock and usually I was do you do you do you miss that aspect of it the waking up at the crack of dawn and oh yeah you know I'm so nostalgic are you kidding every day for the last 16 years when I woke up I look over at my alarm clock and I laugh and I roll back (laughs) over you know once in a while, I'll do like Jim Kerr's show or, or somebody like that. I'll do morning radio out of mm-hmm. town or something, and I'll have to get up at, you know, even get up at 6 or 6.30 right. as compared to 4. Just to and, be plugging your dates. Or... And I, I get up, and I'm, it's just enough to remind me, man, you know, <laughs> I miss the money and the fame, and, right. but, but the getting up, wow, horrible. Well, you have a, you have a new book that kind of lets you go back nostalgically to all of that. It was so much fun. I wrote it uh, over the course of a couple decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all modulus stories, all dated. So as you're reading in chronological order, you can remember where I where you were in 1988 and where you were in 1994. Oh, I remember where I was when they had the Channel 9 show. I remember where I was when they overtook Philadelphia. Uh, if you want to buy the book, there's a URL that goes right to the Amazon page, Jackie the Joke Man, one word, JackieTheJokeMan.com. It goes to the Amazon page where you get the hardcover or the Kindle or the audio book. And Artie Lang did the forward for the book, but he also read the forward for the I mean, read the forward oh, for, for the, the audio book in, in addition to the regular. So it's that's very kind of it's a fun thing. A lot of people are buying it. A lot of people are loving it, and. Uh, you know, people stop me and say, I'm sure you don't want to hear this, but I really enjoyed your book. I said, don't ever, don't ever hesitate to do that. You know, maybe to Johnny Carson, but I'm walking around. Hey, anybody see my book? You know, Right. Now, in 1979 in Long Island, there was no internet. There was no Amazon. There was no. There weren't many comedy books. There was nothing. And we decided to start a show in a restaurant. I, everything is documented in my book. And people are telling me. 
you know, everybody, it's one of those things where you think you know what happened. Right. And you, when you read it, you realize you had no idea. And there was no place to do comedy. And me and another guy put on a comedy show in a little restaurant in Huntington on Long Island. I was like, ah, how are we going to get the word out? We haven't got any money. And what was so, that place called? Cinnamon. Okay. It was upstairs at 25A and 110, owned by Jerry Cooney, the boxer's oh. brother, Michael Cooney. Okay. And we did a show there, and we had guys coming out from the city because we were paying them. You know, in the city, it's you get $6 and a hamburger. We're giving people $40. They're getting drunk, getting stoned, getting laid, having the time of their lives. Yeah, in the late 70s, there were even places that weren't paying at all. Right, and they're coming out by carloads. I'm like, how are we going to... How are we going to uh, advertise this? I got the mm-hmm. bright idea. I'll get a phone line. And I put on dirty jokes and said we're going to be at Cinnamon tonight. And I've had that phone line. It's in its 38th year. 516-922-WINE. The whole world knows that number. 516-922-9463. The whole story of that is in the book. Rick Dees used to give that out in Los Angeles to his listeners mm-hmm. and tell them it was Tom Selleck's home phone number. <laughs> So people, I you wouldn't believe. This well, you story. get mustache rides, but not. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's been a wild, wild and woolly ride. It really has. Were you getting? Were you able to get gigs in the city or elsewhere before you started that room? I never worked the city. I came to the city. Uh, there was a, a very good friend named Peter Bales that used to really enjoy my band in the seventies on Long okay. Island. I was a guitar player and I had a rock and roll band. Were you doing music before comedy? I did music my whole life. I went into comedy because I bailed, and I didn't know what else to do. I didn't even go into comedy. I'm a joke teller. Mm-hmm. By the time I was 31 years old, by the time I was 21 years I knew every joke in the world. And I thought everybody else did, and I discovered they didn't. And when my last band broke up in 1978, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't depend on the other guys to show up and have their guitar in tune and remember their jokes. And I met some guys and just... Started telling my jokes on stage, and we started this place at Cinnamon in Huntington because the guy at Richard M. Dixon's White House Inn, this little variety showcase, mm-hmm. wouldn't pay anybody, and we had to make some money. So we produced the show, paid the other guys, kept the rest of the money for ourselves. And so you went straight from music to running a comedy show. And, yeah, and I chose— with no in-between I of chose, doing open mics right, or— I chose not to go to the city. I went to the city just long enough— to pass the audition at the comic strip mm-hmm. with my friend Peter Bales. And then I wound up working the comic strip in Fort Lauderdale and bringing Rodney Dangerfield there. That's, I, so I have a whole history. But I literally just worked comedy on Long Island. Then I started D- Governor's Comedy Shop and and booked the shows at this place called The Brokerage. So I created this whole scene on Long Island, not single-handedly, right. but helped. And then, I was just going to ask about And governors. then leapt completely over the whole city scene into the chair on the Howard Stern show. So I bypassed the whole <laughs> do seven minutes and get on Johnny Carson and right. get your own sitcom, and then a year later, nobody knows who that. You know, I, throughout my career on the Stern show, I'm watching guys, I'm watching Rich Jenny and John Mendoza and these guys get their own sitcom, and I'm like, Jesus Christ. And then a year later, they lose the show. You know, I mean, Rich Jenny never, never slacked. Plot of a platypus man, yeah. Yeah, but I, it was... Uh, it it every it, it it's it's different for everybody, and I just got very very lucky. But luck favors the prepared. You know the whole story. Did you did you feel at the beginning like you were an outlier or an outcast from the rest of the comedy scene because you were doing you I, were doing your own thing? You started your own room. You were you were a joke teller, and then you were suddenly on the radio. Well, everybody, everybody you weren't doing that normal. What route. happened was when I first started doing comedy. Of course, the word went around as a guy telling old jokes, right? But sooner or later, as each person worked with me, 
they pretty quickly found out I was as funny, if not funnier than them. And that's just the route. I, I didn't go out and look for jokes so I could do be a comedian. I was the guy who was stuck with all these jokes in his head, and I just needed an, out, needed an outlet to make some money. And I started telling the jokes on stage, and it worked big time. And I made an album, made another album, made another album, then sent them to Howard Stern. And they loved me. So I created my own luck. The story in the book freaks people out. They're like, holy Christ, we didn't know any of that, you know. Right. But uh, but slowly but surely, it got to where the guys really, really respected me in time, you know. Did the phone line start out as a, a pay line? It, is, it, has cost, been... it has cost me a fortune mm-hmm. since day one. It was one line. The whole story of that is unbelievable. One line. And then I called up to get a second line. They said, they even called me by name because something like that goes around the phone company in a minute. They're like, mm-hmm. Jackie, we can't give you a second line. Your phone is in your mother's attic. <laughs> And I said, but I, I need a rollover line. It's so busy. And they said, you know what? Everybody loves you. And they gave me a rollover line mm. and then went it to four. Then it went to six. And I wound up with 10 lines what in year? my mother's attic. What year was this? By 1981, I had 10 lines in my mother's attic. And we're getting five, 10, 15,000 calls a day. It was, it was unbelievable. And what, what would people get when they called the number? I tell a joke, then I say, hello, this is Jackie, and you know I love it when you use your finger and dial 516-922-WINE. Tonight, the whole gang at Cinnamon in Huntington on the corner 25A and 110. Come on down, only three bucks. Don't miss it. Two Jews going to a bar, you know, and a few more jokes. And don't forget, Cinnamon Tuesday night. And that was recorded or that was you live? No, no, it was recorded. Okay, good, because I'm like, you couldn't do that 10,000 times. And it was... Uh, and it was phenomenal. Uh, and it built. How many, how many of those people were showing up at the club? You know, the first, I even have a recording of us uh, at one of the very early shows at Cinnamon. Mm-hmm. And I say, hey, and don't forget to call 516-9221. You hear somebody else, it's always busy. I'm like, I only got one line. And then I got two. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's a phenomenon. The stories, the first time the Stern Show sat down in Los Angeles and Rick Rubin sat across from me. He said, Jackie, every morning of high school, I called 9221. He went to school in Long Beach High. You know, and now he's a gazillionaire. He was just starting Def Label. Or yeah, t- yeah. yeah. Everybody, everybody has called that line. And what my favorite thing in the world is people come up to me and say, hey, you know, I used to call you a joke line 30 years ago. And I go, mm-hmm. well, get out your cell phone and call it. What are you talking about? I say, it's still going. They think I'm lying. They boom, boom, boom. Hello, mm-hmm. Miss Jackie. And, and they freak out. <laughs> How often How often would you change the recording? For the first six or seven years, my future wife, Nancy, and I changed it. Every day, seven days a week, was a different one-minute message, which nobody believes, but it is true. And then eventually, we got a, a bigger machine, mm-hmm. a, a dictaphone machine, where I could load up more jokes, and I'd start changing it every once in a while because there were so many more jokes. And now it's down to one line. It's the second line in my house. I couldn't. I couldn't get rid of 922 wine. So now I change it when I have a different gig. Okay. Hello, this is Jack. Oh, just to promote the and new gig. And you can look over and see the light going off. You know, it's... <laughs> I do you, do you I turn die the hard. Ring, you turn the ringer off, though. No, I, yeah, I yeah. You just see the light light up, you know. It's great. Oh, it's, it's lighting up. It's, it's, it's ridiculous, but it's something I have always done and always had. And it, when somebody can't believe that it's still going, that makes mm-hmm. my day, makes my week. You know? Did you know – so it was 1983 when Stern called you in. 19, yes. What, where, was, where was he in the radio? Was he yet the king? Was, no. He was he, a, a he clown had, prince of all media? He was, he was in was Washington, he in 19- D.C. Okay. That's where he hooked up with Robin. 
Right. And he got fired. Mm-hmm. And I was working a gig. This is all in my book. Yeah. I, I was working a, big, a gig at Garvin's. And Harry Montecrusos at Garvin said, Jackie, there's this wild man that used to do broadcasts in his underwear on Friday mornings, his radio broadcast in his underwear mm-hmm. on Friday mornings here from the club. And he just got fired, but he's going to NBC in New York. You should look him up. And so blindly, like we had sent 400 packages, my wife and my girlfriend and I sent all three of my LPs, self-produced mm-hmm. LPs, the matching cassettes and all the promo, Howard Stern, Care WNBC, blind as a bat. I had no idea who the guy, you know, and like a couple months later, she called me and said, Jackie, that guy, uh, that radio guy wants you to call him. I called, and I said, I'm returning Howard's call. He got right in the phone. Hey, we listened to your records. You know every joke. You sound like a lot of fun. You want to come in and hang out on the air today? And so I went in and out, hung out on the air. It was me and Howard, Robert, and Fred. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, he looked over and said, you're really a lot of fun. Why don't you come back next week? And not to be cliche-driven, but the rest is pretty interesting history. Did you Did you know right away that it was going to be a long-term I, relationship. People say this is the best chapter in the book because I really relate what was going on in my head and my heart because I had been trudging along and getting nowhere for decades, you know. And I mean, I'm a mechanical engineer from Michigan State, and it's like 1975, and I'm making $20 a week, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to give show business one more year. And I wasn't even show business. You know, I, I, I tuned my guitar. You right, know? you're playing, <clears throat> right. playing bars in Long Island. Right. And, uh, but I'm going to give it another year, another year, another year. And then uh, when I went in there, I had <clears throat> no idea what to expect. All I knew was I was booking Governor's Comedy Shop in Levittown, and I was going to WNBC AM in Manhattan. Of course I was going. And when he said, why don't you come back next week, that was – Totally unexpected, but certainly wonderful. But did I have any imagination it might become bountiful? No idea whatsoever. Did you feel like you had to unleash every single joke you knew in that first I didn't say two words. I never, ever told jokes on that show. In 18 years, I I told a handful of jokes. Mm -hmm. It was laughing, my personality, and slowly but surely ingratiating myself over the course of – I worked for three years for free one day a week. Passing notes and mm-hmm. kind of becoming part of the gang. And when he got fired and rehired, he brought me over to the other place one day a week, K-Rock. And then one day he said, hey, we're going to mornings. I want you two days a week. And I went from two to three to four to five. Truth be told, because he was a lot funnier when I was there. And that, that, that really is the truth, you know. And the show, I, you know, with the extra laugh, you know. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't know enough about radio <laughs> and the whole thing, like I was always in bands, mm-hmm. but that was, you know, that was not the same thing. When we, when I walked in and we all was sitting there, and it gelled, and it was, it was so great. I didn't have anything to compare that to. So for all I knew, that that's how radio was. <laughs> you know, I'd gone and sat in with Bob Buckman for two minutes on BAB. Hello, mm-hmm. this is Jackie. How you doing? All right, here's the biggest hit of the week. Boom, you know. And but to sit for four hours and go, oh, this is. Looking back, now I realize that it was very special. And to this day, if I walk in there, you know, I haven't been there in a long time, but if I walk in and sit down, it's like we snap back into place. For those first three years when you said you were doing it for free, did you have any hopes of it becoming paid or were you just happy to be there and and the exposure was giving you? a 50,000-watt flagship NBC station saying Jackie's going to be at Governor's Comedy Shop this weekend – 
that was worth its weight. And, you know, and we were getting a piece of the door at Governor's. So it was, you know, it wasn't direct pay, but it was worth its weight in gold. And I went on a Tuesday, so I made a deal with the guy, Mark Magnuson, at Rascals. I said, look, I'm on the air on Tuesdays. Why don't mm-hmm. I say I'm going to come to your place on Tuesday night, and I'll host open mic night, and you can pay me. Because it was worth his while to give me two or $300 to have his name on WNBC. Hey, I'll be hosting an open mic night tonight at, uh, at Rascals. And people would come in and, hey, heard you on the radio. So it was, it was always so worth it. For free, it was so worth it, you know. Yeah, I mean, by the time I was getting involved in comedy in the late 90s on the West Coast, anytime anyone Stern-related came out to Seattle or later when I was in Arizona, there were huge crowds. I, I And it didn't matter whether you were the first joke person or, or like the eighth seat on the, the show. The Celebrity Theater in, in Phoenix was, you know, I must have worked there three or four times for Nancy Stevens and whatever the name of that radio station was, and it was... You know, they treated us like gods, you know. They, they were just so nice, and, and I'm fun. You know, nobody else was going anywhere. Right. Fred didn't go anywhere. Robin didn't go anywhere. Howard certainly didn't go anywhere. So they, you know, they got Ringo. But what the hell? You know, I could tell jokes and put on a show and hang out on the air and sit around and sign autographs and break balls and, you know. Jackie, if we give you a couple extra thousand dollars, would you mind going to the bar after the show? <laughs> <laughs> like you could keep me out of the bar after the show, you know. So, you know, I know most people probably ask you about what happened but i'm more interested in what happened immediately after you left it was like it was a perfect storm um did you you mean to me yeah when you when you suddenly weren't going in every morning it was it was beyond wacky uh people say oh nancy left jackie because he lost his job my wife and i had been kind of coexisting in the Mm -hmm. house for years you know, there was no time to get divorced or break up or move out. You know, I'm working, working, working. You're and gone in the mornings and then you're gone in at weekends night. You're hardly there. And she's great. And we, were, we had always been great, great pals mm-hmm. since way the beginning. And so when uh, I was off the air, it was so funny. This house became available right on the water. But we had always wanted in the middle of when we're breaking up. I said, oh, well, we got to buy it. You know, even though we knew we were going to break up, but bought the house like a year or two before I left the show. And... All of a sudden, I was off the show, so I moved in there, and she was where she was, and it was it was so odd, um, and it was crazy because I had way too much free time. So I moved into a house by myself, split up with my wife, lost my job, and then quit drinking concurrently. And people say, psychologists will tell you, if you do any one of those things— don't change anything else. If you try and quit drinking, don't change anything else oh, in your life. Yeah, when you quit drinking, if you move into a new house, don't change it. Cause yeah, it's, they say don't change, don't make any major changes in the first year. Because it's all, and all four of those things mm-hmm. were, you know, all of a sudden I'm alone in a, a strange house at the end of a street. I'm on the water and I'm in God's land, but you, you couldn't tell me that at the time. And, you know, I'm split up with my wife and I realized I had too much free time. I said, I can't spend the rest of my life waiting for it to be 5 o'clock. And I said, the only way to combat this is have it never be 5 o'clock. And I quit drinking. And it was it was rough and rocky, but weird and fun and different. You know, looking back, it's like, it's like life. You can mm-hmm. look back and remember the horror or remember the great. And so much of it was great. Where did you redirect your energies? I didn't do much. I didn't do much for, for a while. I uh, drank coffee, mm-hmm. uh, worked on my book a little bit. But I, I was determined to, to take it easy. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been going 
you know, 27 hours a day for 50 years. You know, I had four lifetimes before I met Howard. I worked around the clock, even though I didn't get anywhere in music. I wrote songs and broke my balls. And, you know, you. I look back and then I look back at what I did while I was on the show, putting out CDs yeah. and changing my act completely and recording it and 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 producing it while I'm on the show and, and, and then on the Channel 9 show and then I host Wrestler's Comedy Hour. I did more in one day than now I do in a month. And I was just, you know what? I put my feet up and, you know, and it was it was good and bad all at the same time. How How long did it take you to settle into the new life? Everything is so gradual. Mm. You know, I quit drinking and I was like, I didn't have DTs. I didn't go to AA. I just quit, and people, are, well, you didn't have a problem then. I said, "All right, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to impress anybody." With, <laughs> you know, I just stopped drinking. Right, you know? people quit drinking for different reasons. Right, and uh, and then I realized any jackass can sit at home and not drink. <laughs> the trick is to go out again. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, I, I mean, I've spoken to so many people that have quit drinking and talked about this. You're talking to one right now. Well. <clears throat> I can't go to a bar. If I walk in a bar, all eyes are going to be at I me. Mean, you are an imposter. You're not drinking. Get out of here, man. You're not one of us. And finally, I say, oh, what the hell? And I go to a bar and get a Diet Coke and put a stir in it. Not only does nobody know, nobody cares. Right. <clears throat> nobody could get. And, I, and I'd stand there and talk to people and they'd be holding their drink. And I'd be talking to them for 45 minutes and they wouldn't even take a sip. And I'm like, are you going to drink that or what? You know, because I would have drank five drinks in the time that they're standing there. But but you learn pretty quick that nobody cares. Right. People. And you and I get laughing with somebody and I'm fu- I'm off to the races. You know, I'm off to the races. You know, it's so funny because I remember going to ba- uh, to bars or clubs or parties and I take a Budweiser out of the refrigerator. The party started in my mind before I even opened it. You know, I'm now whether that's an alcoholic or a social monster or a guy that's totally screwed up, I who knows. But all you got is what you got, you know. Right. I mean, and people are pretty self-centered. Yeah, they, they care even about with, them. Even with or without the drink, so they're not. Right, right, right. It's, people aren't thinking about you. No. And, uh, and it was very interesting. In fact, I have to have you on the show so people can start thinking about you again. <laughs> that's a good idea. That's a good idea. <laughs> The, you know, and everybody's like, I'm sure you have the same, you know, do you mind if I have a drink with dinner? And like, you know, no, I could kill less. Yeah. You know, like my, my family drinks like You can crazy. take off your pants if you yeah, want to. Do whatever. what you want. <laughs> poop on the floor. Have a party. Just don't poop on me. Hey, you got to find, the, you got to get my book. The, the chapter about quitting drinking yeah. is one of the best chapters. And it's uh, jackythejokeman.com. Please get how, hardcover, how, audio, Kindle. <laughs> I like how I got I, I like how you drop the ad. It's, I like, it's like being on the radio again. <laughs> that that line again is, is jackythejokeman.com. dot <clears throat> com. Um, well, you haven't even heard my rap. My rap is the hardcover. You, you buy Christmas presents. Mm-hmm. What do you do the night before Christmas? Is you wrap everything? It's a pain in the ass. What about when you get to a book? It's like oh, it's so easy to wrap. So yeah. I tell everybody get the hardcover. It's a snap to wrap, folks. It's a snap to wrap. <laughs> you know, you'll never kill. How it. did you? How did you know it was finally time to write the book? I mean, you talked about working on it for many years. How did you? You want to know the answer? Yeah, what's the real answer? Somebody said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And we're like, finally. The first forward to this was, I'm sitting at JFK with Gilbert Gottfried. We're going to the Superstation in Las Vegas to record a show called The Watcher. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was 1994. Mel Berger from William Morris is interested. My manager, Rory Rosegarten, thinks we're going to get a big deal. 
Well, we did. Then the internet happened, and I started typing up the stories that people knew from the show and putting them on my website. And then I accumulated them. Then people were interested, and the deal fell through. And then I had another group interested, and that and the deal fell through a million times. In fact, this great guy Peter Steinberg uh, said he wanted to try and get me a deal, and mm-hmm. I said, "Well, I got two deals on the table," and they both fell through. And and he circled back and said, "Hey, how's your book doing?" I said, "Funny you should ask. He's a great, great guy, and he got me a deal with Post Hill Press, and my book is out." and I swear to you, I look at the book and I can't believe it. It's like being done with finals. You know, I'll, yeah. be, I'll be right with you, Sean. I gotta take my math test. No, you don't. You're done. You're, you're out of college for Christ's sake. It's printed. It's you know, you know, hardcover. There it is. You know, and it's, and I love it. I do love it. Uh, you know, you mentioned Gilbert, and uh, you know he's he's become someone who on stage is has fallen back in love with telling old dirty jokes himself. If the two of you sat in a room. How we long, have. How long would the two of you be able to go back and forth telling well, I dirty, did his podcast jokes. for the first time, and it was supposed to be an hour, and we did 90 minutes. And a lot of people say it's the funniest thing they've ever heard. And it, But it was stories and mm. lies and fun, but jokes. But yeah. then I did it again for two other half hours, and people just tell me they listen to it over and over. But, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I've been telling him jokes forever since when he first started coming on the show. You know, he's a very hip New York guy. He was the top of the food chain. I'm just some idiot that's on the Stern Show. And then slowly but surely, when people realized that I was passing the stuff to Howard that was making him funny, all of a sudden, I went up in people's heads. Like, it, it word got around. Like, you know, that guy's not just sitting there getting his balls broke. He's sitting there getting his balls broke while he's pumping the hell out of that show. And then people are seeing, and they're starting to realize I wrote this line, I wrote mm-hmm. that line. And... uh and Gilbert and me became fast friends, you know. And, yeah, we could sit and talk and, you know. I mean, a lot of the jokes are jokes completely crossover. But so many jokes crossover. One of the greatest things that ever happened, I got a whole second book written. And so many things I haven't written. Just my, of dirty jokes? or No, well, my, I got a dirty joke book coming right. out in about two months. Called, oh, a new one. Okay. Called The Ultimate Dirty Joke Book. I had one in 1998 that I got a staggering advance for, for a joke book. And I got a tiny advance for my autobiography. And this is this is the ultimate joke book, and it's every every great joke that wasn't in the first book. But mm-hmm. there's unending sources. I mean, you wouldn't believe what's going on in my head. But at some point in the 90s, my buddy said, come on, I got two tickets to see Jerry Lewis. I went to CW Post College to see Jerry Lewis in concert. <laughs> His opening joke was my opening joke at the time, just by odd coincidence. And my buddy looked over at me, what are the odds? You know, only instead of using F, he used bang, you know. I don't know what the sensitivities are to this show, but I'm trying to well, be very clear. you can say whatever you want. Well, it's but, fu- it's but more fun actually, to not be dirty. But that actually leads me into kind of like the most serious question. They all que- belong to everybody. The most serious question I might have is, you know, you're old enough – since you're older than me, you're old enough to to have seen society go through at least two waves of political correctness. I've never Do paid you, attention because jokes have been around forever and they will never go away. Whether they're being hidden in the closet or whether somebody's parading them down Main Street, they're not changing and they're not going away. And poop and farts and semen mm-hmm. and all that stuff is always going to be in the jokes and always happening. And then, you know, the varieties of who's getting picked on and who isn't, you know— there's, they're always they're always going to pick on the underdog, you know, whether it's the other football team or the other nationality. Or the, it's, it's just human nature. The question is, how severe is it? You know, somebody comes to see me and they see me telling Jewish jokes and hear me telling a Polish joke or, 
or, or a crap Polish joke. Polish jokes. That takes me back to you when know, I was a kid. Yeah, Polish jokes. But I'm up there, and if anybody can't tell that all I'm doing mm-hmm. is trying to make everybody laugh and have fun, there is not, there is not a evil bone or evil piece of intention, in it, which is everything. You know, you could say something, the same thing to two different people, two different ways, you know, and, and – you could say hello to somebody and piss them off, you know, if, right. if, you're, if you're rude. I've heard, I've, heard comedian, I've heard comedians as a bit say, like, just the way you hear someone say Jew, you can tell if, right. <laughs> if they're right. friendly or not. Which One reminds of our me accountants of, is a Jew. <laughs> yeah, Roy Moore's wife. Jeez. You know, string her up, you know. God, no wonder they keep her in a cage. Holy Christ. That's not get political, but my God. Well, that's what I was going to say. Know, like, you know like, that that was... That wasn't her talking. Those were prepared remarks. Did you know that? That was uh, yeah. written down. <laughs> she prepared. Either she, she, she probably wrote it, rehearsed it. Either she wrote it or somebody wrote it. Oh, no, the way she the way she looked as she delivered the line, she had definitely. It was me delivering a really important punchline. You know what I mean? She like, thought that sure, was, yeah, she, hear this one. You know. <laughs> Ah, the world's coming to an end. But that doesn't mean well, you I can't buy the, my book. But that's, I guess, the difference between dirty jokes and political jokes. Like, dirty jokes, it doesn't matter if you support one party or the other. You go, you know, dicks are dicks. Every, everybody, everybody goes to the bathroom and everybody has yeah. sex or wishes they were. And it's that simple. <laughs> well, now that you have this book and it's published and you're not going to go back and rewrite it, what's, what's next? When I wrote it, it's modular stories. Mm-hmm. It's two pages, three pages, five pages. You can sit down and read it bite-sized chunks. Mm-hmm. You can read it in any order. It's chronological, but you can read what, what was going on with me in 1988. You can read what was going on on the Stern Show in 1998. You can jump around. But in the course of writing this, I literally have a second 300-page book, which is the exact same thing, only different. In other words, all stories about my childhood, stories mm-hmm. about high school, stories about the Stern Show, and they're all chronological. They're all so. In other words, there might be another. Uh, there might be a 1995 story in my book, but there might be two more 1995 stories in the book that wasn't. Pu- it okay. was Sophie's choice picking what goes in because there's so much. You know, you know, I didn't get near my high school, college. There's so many, so many funny stories, and I just. My goal is to sell enough books that I can write the sequel. Okay. I mean, I got a joke book coming out, but I want to write the sequel. Right. And, you know, and it was so much fun doing the audio book. And, you know, and, the, and that's the great thing. People tell me, we got you in the car. You know, you're back in the car with us. I'm driving along and I'm listening to you tell you stupid stories. You know, I close my eyes. I'm back on the Stern Show. And, and for the most part, a lot of people liked the 90s when it was me and Billy and John and the whole, all of us carrying on, you know. Well, the 90s was a good decade for me, too, and I wasn't even on the radio. It just was – everybody's <laughs> making money. Everybody's spending money. Uh, you know, I usually close by asking my guests for advice. For you, what, what advice would you give – you know, we just talked about how you can, you can tell offensive jokes and, and, and be kind about – like what would the advice be you would give to a young comedian? Many young comedians at open mic start out very offensive, very raunchy. What advice? I always say the same thing. I say, you know, Bill Miller, Doctor Bill Miller, asked me this in like 1979 when he was first starting, and I I had an album out, but I didn't know anything. And I said, well, the way I work with my jokes and the way you should work it, as far as I'm not talking about attitude, but as far as craft, Mm -hmm. is you come up with a joke or came up with come up with an idea. In my case, I I have a joke I think is going to work on stage, and you got to do it three times because before you've delivered it. 
with the <clears throat> with the pomp and the and the confidence that you sell that's as good as you're going to sell it. And after three times, if they don't laugh, out it goes. Unless you really like it. I have jokes in my act, uh, and if they really like it, it stays in. I have jokes in my act that I can't believe the audience likes as much as they do. But I can't right. believe they don't see it coming. <clears throat> but I'm, I, I fall in love with that, and there's jokes in my act that <clears throat> just are never going to be superstars, and I just, they're my babies. They're, they're my child with the limp leg. That you know, They're my tiny Tim. And, and, but it, it's all about self-confidence, and it's, you know, there's a chapter in the book about Jimmy Fallon, and he keeps swearing that he's, he used to swear he was going to have me on the show, and he never did. You know, he loves me mm-hmm. and tells me I tell the story to my friends, and I've never gotten near the show, but it's it's that story. And people always come up to you when, when you start to get known and say, I want to be a comic. What do I do? And I say, quit, because <laughs> you haven't got a chance, which sounds so rude. But it's not at all, because if you tell me you want to be a comic and I say give up, you haven't got a chance. <clears throat> if me saying that to you is enough to slow you up, you are not cut out for this. Right. So it's it's not an unfeeling thing. It's a real thing. And Jimmy Fallon came up to me in 1995 at, <laughs> at, in Albany when we, Howard was running for governor. And we went to Albany mm-hmm. and he said, I came up to Jackie at, at the bar and said, Jackie, I want to be a comedian. And he told me to quit. <laughs> How perfect the panel story yeah. is that? That's, you know. Um, you the, know the only thing this you just don't give up. You know, and if, any, and if you do give up, then you weren't, you know. Uh, but, but in terms of, like, writing that line where you can tell a dirty joke without being so offensive that you shouldn't be telling it in the first place. That all comes with being on stage long enough. You know, it's so hard because audiences are so, you know, when you have six drunks at a, mm-hmm. in, a, in a bar... It is not the same thing <clears throat> as having a full house. You know, like I have people open open up for me that are fairly, not beginning, but fairly new comics that are used to going on late to 20 people at the comic strip. And I say, look, do 15 or 20 minutes. Don't do any more. And they'll, they get out in front of 400 people that are dying. Even though they're waiting for me, these people are out to have fun. And these guys are like they dropped into a butter tub and they don't want guys and girls. They don't want to get off because, but I tell them, don't let that be any more of a, indication to you than the 20 drunks you got to weigh it you know Mm -hmm. it's it's really difficult and you just got to look at it as college and as interesting the main thing i tell people if you don't really really love it don't do it you know it's not it's not a it's not a quick fix you know you're you're in for the long haul some people get lucky some people never get lucky you know you know what i love is that you're your uh, rule of telling it three times and letting the audience decide, that's, I believe, the same rule that Stephen Wright told me he has. Is that right? And, you're, and you couldn't be farther apart on but the spectrum of But that's not true. Comedy. He tells it, you know, he, he delivers he a He delivers line. jokes, but... He gives it three but times. He's, you know, he's, he's not in your face. He's very mild, you know, dry. What's this? You know, he, he was... Uh, I was doing surreal. But it's, it, it just goes to show that, like... It doesn't matter what kind of comedy you do. It's- no, you know, I headline. I was headlining at the uh, headline. I, I had a show at Giggles in outside of Boston. Lenny Clark's oh, yes. brother, Mike up Clark's in place. Yeah. yeah, and Stephen showed up, and uh-huh. and uh, Mike said, "Listen, Stephen's doing Letterman. He'd like to do seven minutes, you know, after the feature act." And I'm like, "Well, sure, you know." And he went up and destroyed the place for seven minutes, and I went up and killed, and I got off, and he was still there. 
he stayed to watch me. And he's like, you know, wow. He said, hey, I didn't know you were that freaking funny, man. That was great. You know, and to hear that from him, you know, that's, yeah. you know, that, that's because it's jokes. It's stupid jokes. It's just like Gilbert. You know, we're funny. You know, if you don't like jokes, get out. Well, you know, if, if you truly love comedy, then you truly love other comedians. Of I, I say that too. I say that too. And so I, I really love the fact that you came in and uh, sat with me. And I hope you sell enough of this first memoir to write the second one. Well, it's already written. I just hope I get to, to release it. Once again, JackieTheJokeMan.com. It's in hardcover. A snap to wrap. <laughs> Kindle edition and audiobook by Audible with Sam, uh, Sam Kinison. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> With the, there was a Freudian friggin' slip if there ever was one. Holy Artie Lang doing the forward. Oh my God. That was a real life. But if, you, but if you close your eyes, <laughs> you can imagine Ow! Sam Kennison doing it as well. Sam, my Sam Kennison chapter is not in this book. And it's oh. that is its own podcast. So, you know. All right. Well, we'll have you back then. Oh, to I would love it. to come back anytime. This is such a delight. Thank you for having me. I know I'm very long winded, but thank you so much, Jackie. Thank you. <laughs> this episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com. For more interviews, reviews, and comedy news, become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.